Well, a couple weeks ago, we had a uh, baby shower for our youth pastor, Allison. And at that baby shower, we were watching her open her gifts, and the staff had kind of gone in on a couple of larger gifts for her. So she opened up one of those gifts, which was a Strider bike for a baby. And she opened it, and she's opening her other presents. And then at the end of the shower, one of the staff members kind of comes over and, like, whispers in my ear, where's the other gift? And in that moment, I honestly was like, what are you talking about? Like, what other gift? I had no idea what she meant. Well, two days later, I see the other gift is sitting in my room and has been sitting there for weeks. It had arrived before Guatemala, and I had opened it. There's baby gift number two. And then I had left it there and gone to Guatemala and came back. And I totally forgot, completely forgot about this gift. Has this ever happened to you? Do you ever go on vacation and come back and you've been locked out of your email and you cannot, for the life of you, remember the password? Or did it ever happen to you when you were a student that you go on Christmas break and you come back and you cannot, for the life of you, remember your locker code? Where do these memories go? What happens to them? Why is it that we can forget such important information sometimes? Well, I was reading an article this week. Uh, according to, to some experts on the brain, there are a few reasons we forget things. First of all, our memories decay over time. Secondly, we have like interference. And so there's competing memories that interfere with the memory we're trying to bring up. Sometimes it has to do with there's insufficient cues. So right now you probably have some memories somewhere in your brain about second grade and your experiences in second grade. But sitting here in this worship service, you might not be able to remember them. But if we were to go walk through your grade school, there might be sufficient cues to remind you of some of those second grade memories. Have you ever been talking to someone, nice to meet you, I'm Susie, what's your name? And they say, hey, I'm Bob. And like two minutes later, you're like, he just told me his name. What, what was his name? <laughs> Sometimes it's just because of inattention. Like you're meeting a lot of people or you have a lot of things going on on your mind. Our brains also just dump information that is not relevant, that we won't need in the future. So there's lots of reasons why we tend to forget things. But we're in this series in the Psalms of Asaph. And today we're looking at Psalm 78, which is the second longest psalm in the Bible. So Psalm 119 is the longest. Psalm 78 is the second longest. And the theme of Psalm 78 is remembering remembrance. And as we look at this psalm, it is basically Israel's history put to music. So you could kind of think about how when you're teaching a kid the ABCs, you put the ABCs to a song, or the days of the week, or the months of the year, as a memory device tool. This was Israel's history put to music. And so throughout the psalm, we see, that the, we see the exodus, the desert wanderings, the promised land, the reign of the great King David. We see the psalm is reminding, helping the people remember their identity. 
the story of God, the story of the people. It's helping the people remember who they are and who they belong to. See, to know God deeply requires that we remember God frequently. If you want to know God deeply, you must remember God frequently. And so today we're going to talk about remembering, remembering rightly, and remembering God's mercy. So first, remembering. This psalm starts out by explaining why remembering is important. And this is what is said. Remembering is important so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commandments. So the first reason that remembering is important has to do with passing the faith on to the next generation. Now, right now, you are sitting in a chair, in a pew, in this space, and you're alive, and you're breathing, and you're here. You are here in this sanctuary that is nearly 100 years old. If you look at the cornerstone when you walk out later on the building, it says 1921. So in 2021, this will be a 100-year-old building. And here we sit in this space. This chair can represent the people who have sat here before us today. The people who came to this space and prayed and worshipped and gave and served They are the reason we're here in this space today. Like there were some people who wanted to create a space where people could come and become passionate, devoted followers of Christ. And because of them, we sit here today. But that's not the end, right? There will be, and this chair can represent, people who come after us. Like someday, we're no longer going to be here. But we hope and we pray that there will be people who show up and pray and worship and give and serve so that a sanctuary space might continue to exist on the corner of Iowa and South Clarkson and Denver. The first reason the psalm gives for why we repeat the stories of God, why we remember God's work, is so that this generational link might happen. So that the next generation might know God's love and God's transforming work. So all throughout the Old Testament, it's interesting, we see the people of God kind of in this like repetitive cycle. They get in trouble. They call out to God. God rescues them, delivers them, and after a little while, they forget about God. They get in trouble. They call out to God. God rescues them. 
God redeemed them. After a little while, they forget about God again. They get in trouble. They call out to God. You just see this repetitive cycle over and over again. What is happening? Why do the people keep forgetting God? Why did God's people forget God so easily? Is it perhaps the same sort of brain reasons we have today, like just decaying memories or interference, like they had inattention, maybe they didn't think it was important? Maybe their reasons for forgetting God are not all that different than our reasons for forgetting God today. But remembering helps us not only to learn from the past heroes of the faith, but also from the past mistakes of people, the past failures of people. So repeatedly in this psalm, it's not just a focus on the great things that were done, but also the failures that took place in past generations. So we read this, the men of Ephraim, though armed with bows, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant and refused to live by his law. They forgot what he had done, the wonders he had shown them. The failure to remember, it wasn't just this absent-mindedness. It was actually covenant unfaithfulness. They were forgetting the things that God had done. Because to know God deeply, we must remember God frequently. And it's not just that we remember, it's also that we remember rightly. Remembering is more than just recalling the past with nostalgia. It's more than just ruminating or giving a report. Remembering, when the Bible talks about remembering, it is a thoughtful reflection on what has happened and a response, so what now? It's a thoughtful reflection, and thoughtful reflection is always what helps us grow. So we read this, they did not remember his power. The day he redeemed them from the oppressor. See, it's not just remembering, it's remembering rightly. They did not remember his power. The day he redeemed them from the oppressor. It seems they remembered the oppression. They remembered the oppressor, and that was their focus, but they did not remember God's power, that he redeemed them from their oppressor. See, nostalgia is like we remember the good stuff, but what about the hard stuff? Bitterness, that's a memory too. So what do we do with the hard stuff, with the difficult memories? What do we do with negative memories, the ones that bring up a sense of shame or failure or bitterness towards someone else? We can't learn from failures if we don't take the time to name them, to look back on them and examine them, but we also can get stuck. We can get stuck rehearsing and remembering stories that fill us with fear and shame and bitterness. 
So what do we do with the hard memories? Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf wrote a book called The End of Memory. Subtitle is Remembering Rightly in a Violent World. And in this book, he has been through a lot of hardship himself. In this book, he talks about the importance of what do we do with these negative memories? How do we keep the negative experiences in the past from taking over and shaping our future? And what do we do about bitterness? Sometimes we enjoy making memories, but when bitterness is a memory too, what do we do with that? Many times what happens is we allow a story from the past to shape our personal identities. So we ruminate and we rehearse and we remember stories that basically have a tagline like this. I've been burned. I've been abandoned. I've been abused. And these stories of past painful memories shape us. It's like they get into the fiber of our personhood. And they make us move into the future with a cynicism, with a combativeness sometimes. So what does it mean to remember rightly? Just imagine three people with me for a minute. First person, Sharon. Sharon showed up to the, her wedding day, and her fiancé never showed. Like, never showed. So she has a story of abandonment, of rejection, of pain from that awful memory in her life. Okay, second person, Bill. Bill was completely chewed out by his boss and then fired. And those words echo in his brain with a story that says you are a loser and you are never going to be enough. It's Bill. Okay, third person, Karen. Karen adopted a little girl. And one day her adopted daughter took the hairbrush and threw it at her and said, you're not my real mom. I hate you. I want a different mom. And she holds that painful memory. So what does it look like to remember rightly? What does it look like to hold those memories rightly? Certainly, in each scenario, real harm was done. And as followers of God in the way of Jesus, what does it mean to love those who do harm to you? Real harm was done. And the challenging invitation of following God in the way of Jesus is to love those who have done harm. How do you do that? What does that look like? Loving those who do me harm is the hard path Jesus invites us into. To follow him who says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they were doing. 
is a supernatural natural kind of work. And it begins with remembering rightly. Like, how do we remember these painful memories? What do we do with the bitterness? Here's the thing. Bitterness is focusing on the other in a negative light. Here's what they did. Focusing on them in a negative light. To turn from bitterness means considering the other in a redemptive light. What does that mean? Christ died for my sins too. See, when someone hurts me, the temptation is they're all dark, and I, with no shortage of self-righteousness, am all light. Like, I would never do that. Remembering rightly means I remember Christ died for me, too. Christ's death frames my remembering, reminds me of my own need for forgiveness, for my own shame and my own sin and my own need for God's mercy, and that the love of God also is present to the person who has injured me. Now, that does not mean I tell a different story. We get into a lot of trouble when we do not name things properly. So, loving someone who has harmed me does not mean changing the story. Because we get into a lot of trouble if we do not name things properly. So when there is abuse, when there is injustice, when there is violence, when there are lies, we name those things properly. And then after doing so, Jesus invites us down a path towards healing and towards wholeness. And loving those who have done me harm also does not necessarily mean restoring the relationship. Those are two different lanes, two different tracks. Sometimes boundaries are needed, and sometimes I walk this journey and reconciliation does not happen. And a boundary is set, and that is good and needed. But even in the most painful memories in life, at some point on the journey with pain, your soul is at stake in the way you remember the abuse and the abuser. And it becomes a choice because I either am going to focus on my abuse and my abuser and allow my past memories to push me forward. So not only do we have the first incident of evil, but we have the ongoing presence because that memory is pushing me forward. Either you will be pushed forward by a painful memory or you will be pulled forward into the future by God's promises. So somewhere along the way, in these journeys with these painful things in life, our souls are at stake. So if I am Sharon, 
I say something like this, I am a woman who has experienced abandonment and rejection and pain and I live in the love of the one who will never leave me or forsake me. See, it's not changing the story, but where is my focus in this story? Am I being pushed forward through all of life by a painful memory, or am I being pulled forward by the promises of God? If I'm Bill... Then I say something like this. I am a man who has experienced verbal abuse from his boss. And I follow the one who says he has good plans for me, plans to give me hope and a future. And if I'm Karen, then I say, when my daughter said those words, it was like a dagger to my heart. And it is God who makes the orphan a son or daughter. And I trust in his love. And the painful memory of that experience does not get to define this relationship because I am pulled forward by the love of a father who is teaching me how to be a good mother. And I'm being pulled forward by the promises of God that, yes, I love my children fiercely, but God loves them even more. And they don't belong to me. They belong to him. And so that painful encounter doesn't get to define and set the tone for this relationship because I'm being pulled forward by the promises of God. I'm not getting pushed forward by my painful past. Either my past is going to push me forward or God's promises are going to pull me forward. And that is a choice. And that is where we're invited to remember rightly. It's not just that we remember. It's that we remember rightly and we remember God's mercy. Because my tendency with those who have harmed me is to say, They're all wrong, and I'm all right, and I would never do that, and I'm so self-righteous, and they're so horrible. They're pure evil. But to remember the mercy of God is to remember that, on one hand, I am so lost that Christ had to die for me. My need for salvation is so great. I am so far gone Jesus had to die for me, to rescue me, to redeem me. And then at the exact same time, God's mercy says, and I'm so loved, and I'm so valued, and I'm so esteemed that Jesus was willing to die for me. And so on one hand, I remain humble. There's no room for self-righteousness. There's no room for arrogance because I always remember in God's mercy that I am one, saved by grace, full of shame, in need of God's mercy myself. And that humbles me. And then in the exact same breath, there's no room for insecurity because I am the beloved, precious in his eyes. Willingly he went to the cross for me. That builds me up. 
And so it's like you're walking around through life with these two pieces of paper in your pocket. One of them, from dust I've come to dust I shall return, keeps you humble. And the other piece of paper, I am the beloved, precious in his eyes. This world was made for me. And so the gospel, the mercy of God, creates a grounded, joyful human person who has the ability to even love those who harm me, to even forgive my enemies. Because God's mercy has worked that into me. When you think about, like right now I'm teaching Lila how to ride a bike. She's turning six next week. And so what do I do? I run alongside her with a bike and I use all these words, right? I say, pedal, 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 steer, 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 keep your head up, watch where you're going. Words, pedal, 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 steer, steer, steer. But at some point, she's going to ride a bike. And she's not going to have to think, pedal, 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 steer, 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 because the words will have become flesh. So when we encounter these painful memories, what we do initially, it's kind of like pedal, 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 steer, steer, steer. We say, God, I take all this pain and I walk it to the foot of the cross and I lay it down right there and I say, I don't have a right not to forgive because you have forgiven me. Would you work your forgiveness in me? And you do that over and over and over and over again and at some point you're riding a bike and at some point you're free and at some point, you're not being pushed along by your past anymore. You are being pulled along by God's promises because the word has been made flesh and it is dwelling among you, within you, and you're free. Jesus teaches us what it means to be most human. Jesus is the picture of human flourishing, to be able to look at his enemies and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so sometimes it's a little two steps forward, three steps back. But as we follow in the way of Jesus, at some point, you're riding a bike. Learning to remember rightly means learning to remember the God who sets things right and will set things right. Our suffering is real, and we are not minimizing it. And at the same time, we follow a redemptive God who never stops working and, in fact, is doing some of his best work in the dark. So here's the key. Throughout this psalm, Psalm 78, the people, they're not rehearsing what has happened to them. They're not rehearsing what others have done to them. They are not rehearsing the virtuous things they have done. They are rehearsing what God has done because to know God deeply means to remember God frequently. And we tend to emphasize the things that have happened to us or if we're really virtuous, then we tend to emphasize and remember the virtuous things we've done, patting ourselves on the back. But it's not about our actions and it's not about our suffering. It is about what God has done. So in this psalm, that's what you see. When the people remember the exodus, 
they don't just remember that they suffered at the hands of the Egyptians, but they did. They were slaves. But that's just the backdrop to remember what God did for them. So the memory is transformed. It's a hopeful memory. It's a memory of liberation. It's a memory of salvation. And if we emulate that, then we'll be remembering rightly. Let's pray together as we close. God, I thank you that you are always wooing us and drawing us in love and that no matter where we are, whether that is stuck in bitterness or struggling with following invitations from you, that you are so, you are so patient and present, continuing to woo and to draw us in your ways. And God, you know we carry within us these painful memories that need your healing. So I pray you might help us know what it looks like to confess where we need to confess that we've been allowing a story that is not your promise to shape us and that we've been living from a narrative that started in someone else's pain. God, would you transform our pain so that we would not transmit it and would you pull us forward in your promises healing us and allowing us to see a vision of your kingdom come. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.